Have you ever got to the point with a TV series where you want to know how it ends, but you can't really be bothered to watch all of the rest of the episodes? When I was at school, the biggest TV show that we all watched was The O.C. And the final season came out just before we went off to uni and we wanted to watch it and we all wanted to watch it together, but partly we didn't have the time, but also, also partly because by season four is a little bit tenuous and they'd killed off Marissa. Like someone had the bright idea that we could watch the entire last season in a lot less time by just watching the recaps at the start of each episode you suddenly realize how little content these shows actually contain, uh, and it worked. We got the whole season in just an hour. You could view it as we saved 12 hours of our life, or that we only wasted one. But we got the summary of the whole series very quickly. In other spheres, there are other time-saving tips for church. A friend said to me that during the pandemic, he developed a new scale for rating preachers that he watched on YouTube. He, he said, yeah, they're, they're a 1.2 speaker or they're a times two speaker, which I thought, oh, that's really good, until I realized what he meant was that's the speed that he watched their talks on YouTube. He wouldn't tell me what speed he watches my talks at, probably because he doesn't watch them. Um, or at work, I love the phrase TLDR, too long, didn't read. Have you, have you come across that? It is such an act of love when a colleague sends you a really long email with a lot of information and then just puts at the top, too long, didn't read, here's the summary. The world we live in is full of information and it can be quite hard to navigate. It can feel us leaving, you know, a little overwhelmed and in need of help to make sense of it all. And this is a unique moment in history. Like we've never generated content like we have before. You know, it's estimated that a week's worth of the New York Times contains more information than a person was likely to come across in their entire lifetime two centuries ago. But even so, before the invention of the internet, people were still looking for ways to navigate life and wisdom and all the content they encountered. Even in Jesus' day, there was a question that was asked quite a lot. The question was, what's the most important commandment in God's law? I.e., what's the priority? What's it all about? And in our reading today, we're gonna to see Jesus directly grapple with this question and see how not only it makes sense of God's word, but also makes sense of us. Our reading comes from Matthew chapter 22, and the lead up to our reading is quite key. You know, in that time, uh, as today, there were competing ideologies, theologies, and strategies as to how to make sense of life. One of the most successful uh, strategies was that of Rome. Rome's answer to making sense of life is pure power. The Romans, we, we don't tend to see them in the Bible engaging Jesus in questions because the way Rome gets this message across is by crucifying anyone who doesn't agree with them. What's the peace of Rome? We disagree, you die. But within the Jewish world, there are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes, the scribes, and others, and they each have their own way of making meaning. They say, this, this is the way to make sense of life and, and to live it. And if only everyone else would realize that we're right and live like us, then everything will be fine. For the Sadducees, meaning is found in your position in society. For the Pharisees, it's your learning and spirituality. For the Herodians, it's political power. For the Essenes, it was being separate. And the Zealots, well, they just fought with everyone, the Twitter before Twitter. And there's nothing new under the sun. And so we still see these kind of ideas live on and call to us in our culture too. Now, 
all of those ways of making sense of life are, are challenged and threatened by Jesus. And so even though they, they hate each other, these different groups unite against Jesus to try and take him out. And so as Matthew chapter 2 begins, they, they send in the Herodians and they try and trap Jesus and he traps them. Then they send in the Sadducees who try and trip up Jesus and the argument falls over instead. And so now it's the Pharisees. They regroup and they go in for the attack. It's a little bit like tag team wrestling. So here's our reading. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So to summarize, this guy comes to Jesus and says, Old Testament, TLDR, but it's not too long, didn't read. It's too long, did read, still need help. And Jesus answers him. Now, he's not the first person to give an answer. There are accounts of other rabbis having this discussion. There are three separate accounts of Jesus having this discussion, all, all a bit different. So it's likely something that Jesus spoke about quite frequently. And Jesus answers in a very special way, in, in a particular way. He answers by going to the book of Deuteronomy and quoting Deuteronomy chapter six, saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then he goes to the book of Leviticus chapter 19 and quotes it saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, this is what it's all about. Too long, did read, still confused. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if that's too hard to remember, I love this from the writer Diane Comer, a summary of Jesus' summary, love God with passion and love people on purpose. Love God with passion and love people on purpose. And this is genius. Why? Well, this is the first layer of what, is Je what Jesus is doing here that's really helpful for us to understand. The Torah, known here as the law, contained many commandments. And there was often this discussion about which is the most important. The Pharisees at that time had narrowed them down to about 613 different rules, which, let's be honest, that's quite hard to remember, let alone to work with. My kids struggle with two rules, no shoes in the house and don't kick your sibling in the eye. I struggle with Kate's one rule of marriage. Dan, just listen. So 613 laws, that's pretty hard. And I've got something to help us understand it a little bit. It's a bit like this sheet. This sheet has the entire Old Testament Bible printed on it in Hebrew. Well, it would if we had budget, but it's a pretty amazing representation of it. Thank you, design team. And it can feel quite overwhelming, can't it? Uh, reading the Old Testament sometimes can be confusing. It's easy to feel lost in it all. And people had different approaches to making it manageable. One approach was to, to cut bits out of it. That was what the Sadducees did. They didn't accept the prophets or, or to add to it. The Pharisees added law around the law to make sure that you didn't break any of the law. 
But what Jesus does is different. He points to all of it. He says, look, you don't need to cut bits out to understand it, but he also interprets it from within it, quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. I, we've been given what we need to understand it. Jesus says, look, you, you can make sense of all of this by hanging it on two things, by hanging it on loving God with passion and by loving people on purpose. And when you do that, it all starts to make a bit more sense. All of this depends on both of these. But this isn't probably what you get out of bed for in the morning, and, and nor should it. The Bible isn't given to us for the Bible's sake. It's given to us to help us make sense of life, to, to worship God. It's given for living. Uh, Jesus makes sense of the law, but he also makes sense of me. See, you can think about it like this. The, the key line is where Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. To these people, what is the law and the prophets? They're not just writings, they are life. The law or the Torah isn't just rules. In fact, most of it's narrative. In other words, the law is the story of the people of God. It's their origin, it's their identity, and it's their activity. This is where they've come from. But the story is not going as intended. They were promised to have a land and be a people, but they've been exiled and scattered. And so God sent them the prophets, whose message was the hope of restoration, a restoration of the story. Your story will be restored. Your story will be restoried. The law and the prophets is the story of the people of God and the hope of that story continuing to its rightful conclusion. This isn't just about a book. This is about all of their lives and our lives. And Jesus offers us what he promises will work. Because if it's a story without hope, just the law, then it ends in striving. If it's hope without a story, just prophetic protest, then it's baseless optimism. But if it's the law and the prophets, then that is a life that we've been given a guarantee will flourish. What is the story of who you are? And what are your hopes of how that story will end. And here's the most important question. What is your story staked to? And what are your hopes hung on? Is your hope hung on something that's gonna stand? Or is it hung on something that's going to fall? Jesus says that the only way that your story and your hope will make sense is if you receive that story and that hope from him. And then if you hang them on this, love God with passion, and love people on purpose. So how do we hang our hopes? How do we stake our story on these two commands? Well, we're gonna divide and conquer. And this week we're gonna look at love God with passion. And then a few weeks time, we're gonna to return to look at love people on purpose. So how do we love God with passion? There are two tools that we're going to think about today. There's many more, but just two that we'll focus on. We have questions and songs. One of the biggest takeaways from this passage is bring your questions to Jesus. What we see here is that even badly motivated, poorly put, theologically off-base questions generate incredible responses from Jesus. The good news is that you never need to self-censor in prayer or in Bible study. There is nothing that passes through your heart 
that you need to hide from him. This is key if we want to make sense of life. We have to bring him our actual life and not our hypothetical life if we want him to make sense of our life and enable us to love him with passion. At St. Paul's Theological College, SBTC, we, we run what we call formation groups. These are groups of students who get together to discuss what they're learning and how they're being stretched in church ministry. And one of the things we encourage them to do at these times is ask vulnerable questions. Ask vulnerable questions. Ask questions that cost you something and, and that matter. This is the difference between the hypothetical question and the question behind that question. Between the I have a friend who's struggling with X, Y, and Z, and I am struggling with stealing things with, from shops. It's a joke. Um, it's such, so powerful when someone does this because as the saying goes, we impress people with our strengths, but we connect with them through our vulnerabilities. Friendship is formed in that moment where you share something vulnerable and someone says, oh, me too. Sometimes it's almost tangible. In another setting, I love the small group discussion on Alpha. And one of the things I've noticed is that nearly every small group at some stage creates a, a very hypothetical, very troubled, very disadvantaged, very distant individual in a far off land. And then they like to ask questions like, what about him? So, so in one group a while ago, somebody said, yeah, but what if there's a homeless man from Bulgaria, who's had a really tough life and someone hurt his dog and that's his only friend in the world. Does he have to forgive? And then there's a little discussion. But it's that moment where somebody says, but this happened to me in my family. Do I have to forgive? That something unlocks and the discussion moves from ideas to reality and the group become friends. If that's true with one another, how much more with God? And as we bring our questions to God, it means we're being vulnerable towards him, which we'd only do if we trusted him, if we had faith in him. This is one way that we bring our passions to him, because these are the questions we passionately care about. You could think of it like this. Questions directed at Jesus are an expression of faith, not a lack of it. Sometimes we think of faith as an intangible willing or a, a wishing really hard while squeezing your bum. Like, but actually in the Gospels, faith is often framed as allegiance. Where are you aligning your life? When push comes to shove, what are you going to stake your story and hang your hopes on? What this means is that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but offense. When we hear Jesus make a claim about who he is or the, the claim that he makes on our lives and calls us to live in certain ways, doubt says, well, I'm not sure how you're going to do that. Offense says, who does he think he is? Asking questions is not the opposite of faith. We, we see the disciples do this with Jesus. They're always asking questions. We even see Jesus do it with his father in heaven. Kids love to ask questions. Our kids have discovered questions this year. It comes so naturally to children. The other day, Cassia asked me 52 questions before 8.30 a.m. That, that's 52 different questions. I'm not counting where she repeated the same questions over and over, getting louder and louder until I responded. It's a sign of relationship and friendship and dependency. It's also an expression of trying to love God with our mind. We want to love God for who he is, not who we think he is. And questions help bring clarity on this. 
When Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets, you could think of him as, uh, as them bringing command and correction. He wants us to know the truth and questions are one of the ways that he leads us in truth. And that word that Jesus uses over and over, ag agapo, uh, for love means to prefer what he prefers. That expresses itself in a, in a sacrificial way through choosing his way rather than our way and choosing his actions rather than the world's actions. We, we want his ways because he is the way and questions draw us back and show us the way that he wants us to live. And that means we don't have to hold back. You can really test God's word. You can ask hard questions, especially when the passage seems complicated. Don't avoid those. There's this really helpful phrase in Bible study. The truth is in the tension. The truth is in the tension. Often as we look at the challenging aspects of faith, we see Jesus most visible, uh, most clearly visible. Like the, you know, it's like this. There's often a perceived tension between loving God with passion and loving people on purpose. But it's in that tension that Jesus lived his life and calls us to live in too. This is part of the reason we run Alpha, creating a space where people can explore what a relationship with Jesus is like and bring them uh, their questions to him. It's why we run connect groups where you can gather with others and look at God's word, ask questions and seek to know him better. It's why we host SBTC, where we can think deeply about who God is and how he wants us to live and how he wants to lead and his church to lead to make an impact in Malaysia. At the heart of all of this is bringing our questions to Jesus. Faith, seeking understanding, because he wants us to love him with passion. The second tool we have, for loving God with passion is songs and singing. Now, music, is, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Like it's intangible, yet we ascribe a lot of worth to it. Spotify is now valued at $32 billion. Like uh, uh, sped up by the pandemic, karaoke apps are now one of the fastest growing sectors. And K-pop, billion dollar industry. In fact, Malaysians have helped that a lot. In 2008, Malaysians streamed over 1.4 billion hours of K-pop. That's over 160,000 years of K-pop. The world is obsessed with song, but also the Bible is obsessed with song. Its longest book is the Psalms. It's a songbook. Its first book opens with a song. Its last book, Revelation, has 27 songs in just 22 chapters. Nearly every major character in the Bible has a song, Eat Your Heart Out, Disney. And song surrounds all the important moments of Jesus' life from conception to death. In fact, just before Jesus goes to the cross, the most important event in all history, we read that he stops with his friends. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Even on the cross, Jesus quotes the Psalms. It's possible that he was singing when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Jesus singing his questions. Over 250 times in the Bible, we are commanded to praise and nearly all of those occasions, the word has sung connotations. Why is the Bible obsessed with song and singing? Well, the quick answer is because the Bible is about God. God is love and love always ends up singing. But the reason singing is such a powerful tool to help us love God with passion is it is both the action of passionate love and also expresses the hope for a deepening of that love. Whenever you worship in song, you've already won. Because every time you sing, you give him a gift that you've never given him before. 
It's a different day, a different set of circumstances. We come with different wins, different fails. And every single day, we have the privilege of giving him this gift, of loving him with passion through song. This is a means of loving God with passion because every time we sing in worship, we put our heart on the line. We say, God, we're here for you. We're trusting that you are not going to let us down. We come to give you ourselves and to trust you with ourselves again. I saw the most powerful illustration of this in a, in a video of an unnamed Ukrainian woman who had just had to leave her husband behind uh, to fight as she flees the Russian soldiers with her daughter. And in the bus, as she's driven away from her home uh, as a refugee into the unknown, she sings this. Worship is putting our heart on the line in no matter what circumstance we, we find ourselves in. And it's giving God a gift, a passionate gift that we've never given him before. To steal a line from my wife, worship is a weapon that fixes our focus. And it does this because it is a physical embodiment of this command to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It involves our heart. Songs express emotions and desire. It involves our body. Singing is a physical activity. It involves our minds. The words we sing expressing our thoughts. It's a tangible expression of our inner passion. But also as we do it, it's a tangible vision of unity with other people, of loving our neighbor as we sing with them. When we sing, it's like an act of faith that says, Jesus, what I'm doing now in my song, I want my whole life to be centered around you and in harmony with other people. Worship is a weapon that fixes our focus, but it also directs our desires, points our passions and centers our scattered souls on him. Jesus makes sense of the law, but he also makes sense of me. A friend of mine who really struggles with issues surrounding his identity said to me that it's in song it's like he's able to bring all of himself to Jesus. He doesn't need to hide. And as he does, he said, in that place, Jesus makes sense of my strangeness. I have a thousand different desires, but as I worship the one God, he brings all of my scattered bits of me and he brings me into wholeness. The irony of all this is that Jesus makes sense of me by pointing me as something other than me. As you give your life away, you get it back. As you love God with passion and people on purpose, you find that you get the peace and the purpose and the life that you are longing for because you're made in God's image. And that is what he is like. 
Jesus never asks us to do anything that he doesn't do himself. Jesus is the God who, as Jacintha spoke to us about a few weeks ago, is Trinity. God is filled with love and worship, the Father loving the Son and the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Son and the Father, and so on and so on from eternity. And if that wasn't enough, he then sends that love outside of himself and into creation and towards us. Jesus wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength, with all of our everything, because that's how he loves us. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. He didn't, he, he didn't put himself out, he put us first. And he didn't do the bare minimum. Jesus didn't save us by fractions, so we don't want to love him in fractions. He, he went to the cross to pay for all of our sins, take all of our shame so we could receive all of our inheritance. And so the only thing that makes sense is to give him all of our heart, soul, strength, to love him with every possibility, opportunity, and passion that we have. Because who else is more worthy of our time? Who else is more worthy of our mind? Who else is more worthy of our home, our relationships, our passions than him? There is no one who has loved us like he has loved us with the passion that he has loved us. He has given us everything and the life that he calls us into. The story of the law and the hope of the prophets is that we get to spend the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity learning to love him with the passion that he deserves. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. You might like to stand wherever you are and you might find it helpful to put your hands out as a sign of, of Jesus. I want to give you my questions. I want to give you my life. Uh, come and fill me with your presence. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we love you. We thank you that you guide us and that you want to guide us into all truth. And so we ask that you would come and fill us now in every home, in every heart watching this now. Come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we confess to you that we often don't even know our own hearts. We don't know our own questions. Help us to understand the longings of our hearts so that we could bring them to you as an act of faith, as an act of trust. Help us to understand what it is that we want from you so that we can ask. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspire our worship. You inspire our song. You make it possible for us to worship. So Holy Spirit, we pray you give us new songs, new confidence as we sing. And I pray especially for those who, who identified with that, that idea of the fear of bringing your strangeness to Jesus. You don't have to be afraid. He understands our strangeness and he can make sense of our strangeness in a way that nobody else does. And he takes our scattered souls and he, and he brings it into alignment. So, Father, for those of us who are struggling, that that's at the forefront of our, our hearts this week. Lord, bring us peace, bring alignment and release us, we pray, to love you with passion. Amen.